Dharma friends. Uh, this evening I'm going to talk about freedom from distorted perception. I don't know about you, but this is a big problem in my life. Perceptions which are distorted. And uh, I'd like to share with you some of my experience about distorted perceptions and how to be free from them. Those are the areas we're going to cover. Distorted perception, the Pali word is vipalasa. It's a Pali word. It's a very, very important word. No. V there means division, that, that part of the word V means division, separation, and palasa, it means mind taking something up, turning it around and throwing it back. So you get the idea. I'm going to repeat this. Palasa means mind taking up something, turning it around and throw it back. So I don't know whether you have such experience where your mind actually takes something up and really throw it back and you are the receiver. Maybe when I give you some of my experience, you are going to see exactly what happens when you have that mind state. You'll be uh, happy to know that actually things do not have to be that way. You have to practice vipassana meditation. Another important word to know, vipassana meditation. Again, V there also, it's uh, really uh, seeing in various ways. And also, pasana means actually contemplating, contemplation. Comes from the verb pasati. The verb is pasati, to see, to contemplate. So, if you want to overcome vipalasa, you have to do vipassana. That's why we are doing vipassana meditation here. I want to frame your experience here and your practice so that you know where the practice goes, actually. So, I share my experience about vipalasa. When I went to the monastery in West Virginia, there are many rumors that there's a black bear. <laughs> I think Rebecca talked about bears. This is my story about bears. Actually, when I was still young, I was hairy, and that was my nickname. <laughs> I was very unusual Africans in my family. I was very unusual, actually, among the, my siblings. <laughs> so that was my nickname. But I never seen a bear, actually. So here I am as a monk. I go to West Virginia, and then they told me there's a nun who saw a bear. I say, you must be kidding. So, one year in the monastery, no bear. Two, two years, three years, there's no bear. I so said, this is just like a ghost story. Remember the ghost stuff? <laughs> I have to say bear, actually. Now, they had uh, a power plant construction near Bavana Society. It was a big thing, actually. A very, very powerful power line to be constructed passing close our property in West Virginia. So 
they brought all these monsters, tractors, to cut down the forests. So they started cutting down the forests. One time, I went to meditate in my kuti. And then, after like, my meditation, I decided to go for a little bit of a walk in nature, just close to my kuti. So as I was sitting on a, a trunk, I saw a big dog with black hair. I said, wow, this is a big dog. <laughs> Usually that side, actually, we have small dogs coming from there. But this was really big. I said, wow, this is beautiful. And it was coming close to me. Since I had never seen a bear, but I had some idea, like perception, the way how it throws a leg like this. When I remembered I had that perception of throwing legs like this, not like dog, I'm telling you, I ran to the kuti. <laughs> that was my meta, laughing kind of. <laughs> it got scared. And then I felt so bad about it. So I decided to really practice loving kindness, and I started following it. That's kind of naive, actually. You don't want to follow a bear. <laughs> because I had not perceived how dangerous it is, actually. So I say, may I you be well up and peaceful. I start walking, actually, towards it. May you be free from suffering. <laughs> I really actually sent metta, because I was in that space of a meditator, yogi. <laughs> so... Then it just disappeared in the woods. I related the story when I went back to the monastery. They say, you are nuts. You are crazy. How can you <laughs> follow the bear? <laughs> you don't follow the bear like this. <laughs> so later on, actually, I got to know the techniques of bear. You don't run. Because you, actually, you really provoke its instinct to run, actually. So the same way I saw three bears, actually. I was saying, wow, you wanted it, you get it. In Spanish, there's a saying which says, que tienes. I think you wanted it, you get it, you got it. So now I saw another one, with a, ma- mother, a young one with a mother. And um, another place also, I said, bear, three years in a row. And I had spent years really uh, trying to really uh, uh, try to see if I can see one. So I, that was my experience. So I had this a really, really vipalasa there, thinking that it's a dog. <laughs> and many, many times we have these distorted perceptions. There are four of them, according to the discourses of the Buddha. Here the Buddha say, oh monks, uh, because, which is covers really pretty much the audience. Uh, these are four distortions of perception, thoughts, and view. So they operate on three levels. One is on perception, on views, and on thoughts. So if there are four distorted perception, you multiply by three. So you get 12. <laughs> so that's a lot, actually, really, to be distorted. <laughs> right? So, so the, the first distortion is actually sensing the unattractive as attractive, sensing what's really suffering 
as pleasurable. Sensing what really changing as not change, permanent, and also assuming that is itself where there is no self. Going astray with wrong views, beings misperceive mis, mis, mis with distorted mind. But when a Buddha arises and teaching suffering and its end, those with wisdom recuperate their mind. In other words, you come back to sanity. They see the unattractive as such. Suffering, whatever is suffering. They see change in what is changing. And they see non-safe where there's non-safe. So really, actually, that's what we're trying to do here. We're meditating to uh, remove, to be free from these distorted perceptions. Now, this distortion of perception actually is the handwork of ignorance. Ignorance as a mind state, it has two functions. One is positive, another one is negative function. The negative function of ignorance is actually to cast uh, spiritual blindness so you can't see actually. You really can't see. You can't see impermanence. You cannot see unsatisfactoriness. You cannot see unsafe. You really can't see. The positive function is actually you really see, but you see quite the opposite. And that's why we have this vipalasa. Really, you see things in a distorted way. That's what actually happens when somebody has a cataract, eye disease. At one moment, they don't see. But if they manage to see, they see quite the opposite. They see things in a very distorted way. There is a good illustration how actually we can uh, distort the perception, our perception. It happened uh, in Japan. They had uh, drought in Japan, and uh, horses were starving. They wanted to give dry grass. Actually, they gave them dry grass, and they were not eating. They are getting thin lost a lot of weight. So the Japanese, they found out something. They decided to manufacture green goggles. And then they got the green goggles and then put them on a horse like this. So the horses were seeing green everywhere. Everything was green. The grass was green. And they started eating all the grass. Before, they were not eating the grass. Now, they ate all the grass, and they were well fed. It was just changing the perception. Just changing the perception. 
They didn't give different grass, which is green. The grass was the same, but changing perception helped the horses to live their life. So now, we have four perceptions. We need some goggles <laughs> to change those four perceptions. And we can do it. And in a way, that's what we're doing in this mindfulness practice. So the Buddha taught the four foundation of mindfulness, actually. The Buddha taught the four foundation of mindfulness as a way of giving you, <laughs> this time, very clear glasses. <laughs> because we move around the world with goggles, green goggles, yellow goggles, and we see our world in from a very, very confined point of view. All of us, I think, except enlightened being, we have all different goggles, green, yellow, <laughs> purple. So we see our world through our goggles. So we need to remove and see exactly clear insight, clear eyes, and see what's going on in real life. Recently, somebody gave me polarized glasses. <laughs> it was amazing <laughs> when I put them on. It's not the same thing I, was, I, I see here, actually. I've been here, actually, for many years. I used to be on the staff here. I know every part of this land. But I put on polarized glasses and I saw everything different. It's just glasses. So, my friends, you, we need the very good glasses. And those are like the full foundation of mindfulness. The full foundation of mindfulness helps us actually to overcome the distortion of perception. Mindfulness of the body it covers 14 areas out of 21 ways of mindfulness. That helps us to overcome this distortion of really seeing beauty in what is not beauty. Mindf uh, mindfulness of feelings helps us to see, to overcome that, the, the distortion of really see, uh, like seeing pleasure in what's suffering. Mindfulness of mind states it, uh, it helps us to overcome the distortion of seeing things uh, which are like really, really uh, impermanent and we take them to be impermanent. Uh, to, uh, we, we take them to be permanent. Things which are impermanent, we take them to be permanent. Such like anger, all these mind states, we take them to be permanent. And uh, mindfulness of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, like hindrances and all these uh, five aggregates, it helps us to overcome the distortion of seeing a self in what's really non-self. So you can see really how, how the practice we are doing here. It's really a paradigm shift, really, removing our goggles. It's not only to reduce our stress. It can do that. That's a fringe, those are fringe benefits, actually, to reduce stress and all this. But the practice has a big picture to really change our view, our perception of the world. 
perception actually plays a big part of our world. Each of us, if, this is what I, I believe actually. Let's say if we are five billion people on this planet, I think we have five billion perception. I've seen it again and again. The way we, we really act is really <laughs> conditioned by our perception. I remember one time I was staying in a town, uh, there's a college town here, it's called Amherst. And I had a friend of mine from uh, New Guinea, from Africa. And uh, I was going to, before I became a monk actually, so I have to be very clear about this. So uh, I was uh, going to buy a towel and uh, I say, you know, I'd like to get a white towel. I said, why? He, he, he told me, why do you buy a white towel? It's going to get that very fast. I said, yes, I like a white towel so that when it's that, I can wash it. He, then he told me, no, no, no. I, I, I'm going to buy a black towel, a blue towel, so I can't see when it's that. <laughs> so this is a perception. Now, imagine if that friend of mine is a, like a, headmaster of a boarding school, or he's going to order five million towers for the country. <laughs> Black towers or blue towers or red towers, and will not have a white towel. <laughs> but for me, I like the white one so that as soon as I use it, I can clean it so that it doesn't stink, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So this is about perception. It's just about perception. It's amazing. Perception is a big thing. I remember recently, I went to a meeting at Joseph's place. There was a meeting of the teachers at the beginning of P2. And then, usually when we have a meeting at his place, it's always in a sitting, I mean, living room sitting room. And then I went there, I could not hear anybody talking. I mean, ever since I've been here, that's where we meet, <laughs> in the sitting room. So I, I really actually fixated myself, perception. I perceived that's a place for meeting all teachers. So I went there, and then I said, I don't want to disturb Joseph. I, I, I don't see any teacher there. So I came back actually to the staff. Uh, staff room, and I said, where are the teachers? They said, no. Carol told me, go. They are there. I'm telling you, I went back, and I knocked. I entered. The teacher decided to have a meeting near the dining room, and I could not hear them talking. This is just perception. And I don't know what made me believe that always meeting has to be there. They could be anywhere, actually. But I'd fixated ever since I stayed, at, I stayed at IMS. Whenever I go to Joseph's place, it's always the meeting there. So this is perception. Another one. Uh, I, I want to share with you so that you really understand what perception is. And my room is next to uh, room two, 205. And last year when I was teaching P, P1, the teachers decided to have a meeting there. And then when I, 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 after my lunch, I wanted to join them. And then when I reached that room, there was no shoes. 
Whenever I go to my room, I leave shoes behind. And I've been in Asia for almost 10 years, and I'm so much used to leave the, uh, to, to leave the shoes outside the, my room because I see it happening in Sri Lanka and many places. So now, the perception I had is that no teacher is going to take the shoes in that room. And then when I look, I went to that room, there was no shoes at the entrance uh, doorway. I thought there's no teacher there inside. Then I went to the staff room. I said, where is our meeting? <laughs> I don't see anybody. <laughs> they said, oh, they're there. <laughs> so when I knocked, I found every teacher in his shoes. I, I mean, I was so amazed how teachers were inside that room with shoes. But that's my perception. <laughs> it's not them. It's me who has lived in Asia for such a long time, and I just know that shoes are left outside. They don't enter the room. So... With that, that's enough about me. <laughs> I don't know about you. I wish actually this talk is about sharing perception. And I hear you talking about your perception. For me, I've seen it again and again and again. We really act out of our perception. And then we really blame the world. But it's our perception. Okay. That's enough illustration about <laughs> how I'm really... <laughs> Buffered by perceptions. Now, the way actually perception, I mean distortion arises, I've told you about ignorance. We, we really ignore the things in our life and everything. We ignore mostly the three characteristics of existence. The three characteristics of existence, which is impermanence, and satisfactoriness and unsafe, we ignore them. We take them for their opposites. We take everything to be permanent. When anger rises, it's permanent, but it's not. The reason actually we actually don't see this clearly, it's each of the characteristics of existence is kind of masqueraded. It's masqueraded. For instance, uh, anicca, impermanence, it's masqueraded by the continuity of things. Things are really going on continuously. So we cannot see one thing after the other. That's what happens in a film, a movie. You go to a movie, you really get caught up in a story, you cry. And then you really build a story. But if you go behind the, and you see the projector, it's one picture after the other. So we are really kind of uh, caught up in this continuity of things. And it's very clear when you are driving and then you are a little bit far, you see the sign of detour. And then there's one bulb after the other like this. But when you are far, actually you see it as an arrow and then you actually take a detour when you reach there. But once you reach that arrow, which is solid, because it's so continuous like this, so it looks solid, then you find out that it's the one bulb after the other, you know, flashing light. But it's so continuous, so we feel that things are actually permanent. But things are changing all the time. It's because we don't have enough wisdom to see the flaw. We were to see the flow of things. Even when you look at the waterfall from far, 
Actually, it looks solid when you are too far. But as you approach a waterfall, you just start seeing one, one thing dropping and another thing dropping. It's not one continuous thing. So because we don't have enough wisdom also, that's why actually things which are really impermanent look to be permanent. So it's because of the continuity of things. Things look continu continuous. But as we practice meditation, we can see for ourselves. We train you here, we give you instruction to see one thing at a time. Each step, you see something. Each breath is another opportunity to see something. Before it was just convoluted, we really see things continuous. But here, we see each breath. We see uh, the sensation of the breath, one, one sensation rising and one sensation passing out. So we gain wisdom, and then we can say, oh, things which are impermanent, they're impermanent. There's an implication here. We are not meditating to make things which are impermanent permanent. No. We are actually training to remove that tendency of, things, of seeing things which are impermanent, and we see them as permanent. So the training really actually is again and again to train ourselves so that we can see things which are impermanent as impermanent, things which are suffering as suffering, things which have no self as non-self, right? Things which is unattractive, unattractive. Not the other way around and distort things. The practice of vipassana is actually <laughs> the best practice to remove the distortions. Vipassana there, the word V, before pasana, it means there's two Pali words there which are very interesting. One is visesana. Visesana, it means specifically, really seeing things specifically, really knowing the interesting, intrinsic nature of things, whether that's um, the body, and then it's element. So the, in that, when you like say, I'm just giving an example. So if you are, let's say, uh, you are aware of the body, and then you just know, oh, this is earth element. Then the property of earth element will be hardness. So when you see hardness, you become aware of hardness or softness. That's the intrinsic, intrinsic nature of that uh, element. So that's what we do. We train so that you, we can see the intrinsic nature of things. Then also, vidya means vivida in Pali, there, which means various, differently. So that means you, when we practice meditation, we start to see things differently in terms of impermanence, in terms of uh, uh, unsatisfactoriness, in terms of non-self. So pasana means contemplating. So the word vipassana, really breaking it apart, is very important to really know what we do in vipassana meditation. Because we translate this word vipassana as insight meditation, but we don't know what's insight. And most people use this in their life. Oh, I had an insight. This, we use this in their life. Oh, I went to the party and I had an insight into joy, <laughs> into happiness. Is that an insight? But actually, when we look at Pali, Pali is very clear. V means vi 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 vi
Vicesana being specifically, not in a general way, specifically, intrinsic nature of the experience. And vivida uh, means different, various ways in terms of the universal characteristics of experience. So in other words, if you are, when you are meditating and you are able to see the intrinsic nature of your experience and you are able to see the universal characteristics of your experience, then you are practicing vipassana meditation. Otherwise, maybe you are practicing vipassana, not vipassana. <laughs> so you are just passing time, you know. Really, it could be that way. It's very easy, actually. You just pass time, really, hanging in there. You, know? you don't really go deep into the experience. So we, when you are aware, let's say when you touch like this and you become aware of pressure, that's actually intrinsic. Then as you continue your practice, you can see that pressure changing. As soon as you see the change, as, as soon as you start seeing, oh, rising and passing out, then you're into vipassana mode. That's a practice. I hope you remember this, <laughs> so that at least you really know what's vipassana as opposed to other kind of practices. So it's vipassana meditation that is going to help us to overcome the vipalasa. With anicca, which is impermanence, we know that all the five aggregates of clinging are impermanent. We get to know that. In fact, <laughs> the five aggregates of clinging, we cling on to them and we suffer. People who are enlightened, they don't cling on to them. So in other words, our suffering is not because things are changing, actually. Because they're also arahants. <laughs> things are changing for arahants. It's not for us only that things are not changing. Also, people who are enlightened being, who are enlightened, they actually have the five aggregates, and they're changing. They don't stay stuck. <laughs> they have feelings which, are, which is changing. They have, the, the body is changing. Their mind states are changing. But for us, we hold on to things which are changing, and we attach, and then we suffer. Anytime you really hold on to things which are changing, that spells disaster. We suffer because we are holding on to things which are changing. So this is very, very important to remember. <laughs> we are not suffering because of the nature of things that are changing, but we are holding on to the changing experiences, and then that brings resistance. i give you an example. For, let's say craving. Let's say you crave a chocolate, maybe uh, ice cream. That's maybe that's your craving. The reason we suffer is that actually there's a crash. There's a crash here. The sense, the instability of ice cream, <laughs> the, the sense object is changing all the time. But craving that we crave for stability of that object. So we crave for stability, and then that craving for stability crashes with the stability of that, I mean the, the instability of the, the object. Objects are changing all the time. You may want to fix them so that they don't change, but good luck. Every time 
<laughs> even feelings change, you know. When you, they say you eat something and you feel wonderful and all that. Next time you go and eat, it has changed. So there's always a crash of craving for stability and things which are insta- non-stable. So when you crash like this, that's what we call dukkha in Pali, or stress, because there's always a, uh, that resistance. The practice is really actually to be mindful of the rising and passing away of that experience. Cravings rising and passing away. Everything's rising and passing away. So we see the characteristics of uh, impermanence. Things are rising, passing away, and both. Rising and passing away, both. We try to contemplate on the dukkha, the, uh, the, uns- the unsatisfactory experience. Uh, we can contemplate dukkha and gain insight into dukkha. Non-self, we do the same thing. Uh, we, we know that uh, the five aggregates of clinging and have no self, then we contemplate and we can see for ourselves non-self experience. But non-self experience. Now, what we practice actually the, is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. I want to go over a few things here. That because those are the the, these are the practices that they are going to help us to remove the goggles. So we start with the body. Body contemplation is very, very important to see the body as it is. Otherwise, we are going to have a vipalasa of really uh, seeing things which really are unattractive and see it as attractive. But the body is as it is. Okay, look at the breath. <laughs> the breath is as it is. You know? In meditation, when we practice the meditation about the body, we learn to see the body as it is. Not as we think it is, uh, but really as it shows up. It shows up. That's what it is. There's a contemplation which is called 32 body parts. But it's a most misunderstood teaching. And whenever people teach this, most people get it the wrong way. Oh, it's very pessimistic about the body. Or I hope I can convey the real picture of what the body is. Otherwise, I'll be not so popular. <laughs> In... USA, <laughs> teaching the body that is not attractive. The contemplation of 32 parts was even taught by the Buddha himself. And after the Buddha taught this contemplation, he went out for, he went somewhere. And he came back, some of the monks had really, I mean, they, were, they started roughing the body. <laughs> and they started, they asked one person who was in a monastery, you know, Take the robes, take the arms bow, please kill, uh, kill me. <laughs> please, I don't want the body at all. We don't like to be in this body. So the, when the Buddha came, he asked Ananda, where, where are my monks? Oh, you know, they kill themselves. They ask to be killed. So the Buddha said, oh, these my misguided <laughs> monks. They didn't understand the teaching. <laughs> the teaching, actually, that's when the Buddha actually brought another teaching of mindfulness, teaching mindfulness. So the teaching is not intended to hate the body or even to get attached to the body. 
it's really intended to really have equanimity when you look at the body. So we don't see the body with our emotion commotion. That's usually what we do. The simile is going to help us very much actually here. Because the simile is like this. Just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends, full of many sorts of grain, such as heel rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, and white rice. And a person with good eyes, a person with good eyes, that means a person with good insight, we had to open that bag and review it thus. This is heel rice. This is uh, red rice. This is beans. So too, a person, a meditator, reviews the body in the same way. So I hope if you really uh, want to practice this teaching, is really you remember this simile. You, when you really open the bag, you don't say, Heel rice, I don't like it. Beans, I like it. So also we should see our body like that, not with aversion and not with attachment, but to see the body as it is. That is going to help us to overcome the vipalasa. <laughs> Many other practices are there even for elements. For elements there to help us actually to really... Uh, kind of deconstruct what goes on with the body. Here is the, the simile the Buddha gave for the four elements. Again, bhikkhus or meditators reviews this same body, however it's disposed or placed as consisting of elements. Thus, in this body, there are the earth element water element, fire element, air element. He gave a simile here. Just as though a skillful, a skilled butcher, not very Buddhistic actually simile, but anyway, let's go, <laughs> has killed a cow and he was, as was seated at the crossroads with, with it cut into pieces, so too a meditator reviews this body. So, actually, this is uh, some practice that is going to help you actually to really uh, have equanimity when you are, you are looking at the body. Right? <laughs> feelings. Feelings, we always distort them. Hmm? What's really dukkha, we take it to be happy, happiness. So, that's a distortion. What is dukkha? We should see it as dukkha, not distort. So the practice of mindfulness of feelings, that again, Buddha split the feelings into pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So you can really see that, okay, well, also there's some unpleasant feelings. And in many ways also there's neutral feelings. Some of the feelings you are feeling of being dissatisfied with your practice is part of this, actually. It's part of this kind of feelings. It's called unworldly feelings. There's a lot to talk about this, but you know that uh, the contemplation of feelings, it helps us to really overcome that distortion so that we can see pleasant feeling as unpleasant. 
When is, uh, I mean, sorry, if it's a pleasant feeling, we see it as pleasant feeling. If it's unpleasant feeling, we see it as unpleasant. It's when it's neutral, we see it as a neutral feeling. No distorting, right? changing like this. Mind states. Mind states, that's the third foundation, um, contemplation of the mind, mind states. So there are many mind states like lustful, angry, deluded, distracted mind, great mind, unsurpassed mind, concentrated mind, deliberated, vimutta. So these are all mind states that uh, this contemplation requires you to focus on. The instruction again is very, very clear because there's always a distortion that, okay, this mind state is permanent. That's a distortion, a distortion, you know. What's impermanent and you start distorting it and you see it as permanent. So when we practice this foundation, we see clearly, we see clearly that this mind state is really changing all the time. Whether it's greed, whether it's aversion, it's changing all the time. The instruction, this is what the instruction uh, goes. It goes like this. A meditator knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. A meditator, another instruction, a meditator knows an angry mind to be an angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. So please, I would like to tell you to tell me, is, is this what you do when anger rises in your day life? To see really that, okay, this is anger, as anger? No, when anger rises, we just look for the object of anger. We just go for the object of anger. We don't focus on the mind itself, the mind state, and see actually that this mind state is changing all the time. And that's the, the reason actually what we anyway also known to see because uh, we always focus on the object. When greed arises, when lust arises, we go into the object. But if we stay with the mind state, then we can really see that anger is just changing all the time. Then we see impermanent things as impermanent. Then we can actually not distort. This is very like simple thing, but really actually most of our suffering is due to distorted perception. Most of our suffering we go through is because of distortion of perception. The Buddha taught the four foundation, um, the four foundation to liberate us, actually. So the fourth foundation is about uh, uh, mindfulness of the dhammas, the Paliwa, the dhammas. Uh, translated as my mental objects, but that's not a good translation. It's a group of dhammas, a group of phenomena that the Buddha really cl uh, classified together, like five hindrances, five ag uh, the five aggregates of clinging, six sense bases, and then factors of enlightenment and noble truth. It's a really group, really. So, again, the practice of mindfulness, let's say, for of the five aggregates of clinging, it helps us to overcome the distortion, seeing things 
uh, uh, which have no safe, and we see it as a safe. Because we see it again and again in our practice. I gave a talk about five aggregates. We see that the five aggregates have no self. And now we are going to have a problem here. If there is no self, who is meditating? Is that question familiar to you? Okay, if there is no self, who is listening to the talk? I think I'm going to address. This is the most frequently asked question, this question. Even on a big conferences. I remember I was in a conference in, in Washington, D.C. The Dalama was there. It's called Mind and Life Conference. All the scholars, all the cream from around the world were deliberating. I was part of that in the audience, part of that conference. Somebody popped up with this question. He said, okay, if there's no self, who are, who are the people in the conference here? What are we doing here? So this is very common, but we are going to address it. Just remember the similes the Buddha gave, actually. About, you are going to find out about the five aggregates, actually. I'm going to explain. But just remember what the Buddha talked about, the five aggregates. For, like the body itself, he compared it to form, you know, F-O-A-M. You know, it looks like real when you look at the form, but actually, it's not. It's just really empty, basically. And science has it that really each cell is 99% empty space. And 1%, what do you think you are? So if you put all the cells we have, really, we are much of pretty empty space. But that's science. So let's go to what the Buddha said. Okay, feelings, he talks about, the Buddha talks about bubbles. When you look at bubbles, they just, nothing inside. It's just empty. But don't think empty as vacuum because there's also another misunderstanding. Most talk, people talk about emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. Oh, everything is empty. Then that's a big misunderstanding. No, everything's conditioned. That's how we should understand emptiness. There's a nun actually in Brazil I met. Um, she's really a very famous nun in Brazil, Sao Paulo. She was practicing in, in uh, she was practicing in Japan, and then she had a teaching on emptiness. She was into this, um, I think, Zen practice. And then she started saying emptiness, emptiness, one day after the other. And one time the monk, the Zen priest, got a stone like this, whack, on his foot, on her foot. Is it empty? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> so I think we're not going to do that here. We are wonderful teachers. I think we're not going to <laughs> throw a stone on your <laughs> foot to realize the teaching on emptiness. But most people actually go into that uh, misunderstanding that everything's empty and they miss the whole point. So uh, on one level, uh, you don't want to really <laughs> think that it's really a vacuum actually. So feelings is compared to bubbles, like bubbla. In the Pali word is bubbla. It's just rising and passing all the time. It's just really pretty much empty. 
space. Perception compared it to a mirage. You know, when you drive and you see a mirage, you reach there, there's nothing. But sometimes you think there's something, water, <laughs> but there's nothing. It's changing all the time. There's no core, in other words. So mental formations, the Buddha compared it to plantain, plant, you know, tree, plantain tree. But we don't have so many here, I think. So I want to use onion. Onion. Hmm? Onion, whenever you peel the onion, you don't find anything in the middle. It's just on and on with the eye in the middle. Right? So you don't find anything <laughs> unless you really have a sense of eye. That's all what you find, your sense of eye. <laughs> There's really nothing inside there. Then for consciousness, he compared it to a magician tricks. Actually, when you, they make these tricks, you really think there's really something there. But when you really look at it, there's really nothing there. When you get to know the trick, it's nothing. That's consciousness. So this is very, very important. And now uh, to know those uh, uh, Buddha's actually comparison of the five aggregates with these things. I want to answer the question which is so common because many times in my talk always I talk about IM, not IMS and it's a bit confusing. If there's no self then who's even giving a talk? So these are the th three things you need to know about the usage of the word self. The first two, the Buddha had no problem with the usage of the word self. It's the third one, the Buddha had a problem. The Buddha had a problem with the third usage. So the first one is to use the word self as a reflexive sense, in re as a reflexive uh, sense, train yourself. Even the Buddha said that you should be a light unto yourself. Train yourself. This, there's no problem. Buddha had no problem. The second usage of the word self is actually as a shorthand device to represent the five aggregates of clinging. So the Buddha said, I'm going for arms round. So there he was using the word I to represent the five aggregates. So if you ask, if there's no self, then who's listening, listening to the Dhamma talk? Now you can answer that question. It's the five aggregates of clinging. They are listening to Dhamma talks. It would be very, very awkward to say the five aggregates are giving a talk to five aggregates. <laughs> five aggregates are getting bored of my talk. <laughs> it's going on and on and on. <laughs> so to avoid that kind of vagueness, the Buddha said, okay, let us use I as a shorthand device to represent the five aggregates. Yes, the five aggregates are listening. The five aggregates of clinging and listening to the five aggregates, talking. That's the truth, actually. <laughs> Next time, if somebody asks this question, you tell them who's listening to Dharma talk, who's doing this. Don't shy away from this question, because I've seen it again. People really, they get caught up in this question. Now, the fifth, the, the third meaning of the word self, it used to be in India, even up to now, actually. To really take the five aggregates as really a solid thing that like inside there there is something like a core really, really that is permanently permanent that even when somebody passes away, that thing is somehow going to go 
uh, I mean, either through the nose or ears, I don't know. It's going to pop out and go to another body. That's the problem. The Buddha had this problem. He had no problem with the other usage. That's the problem the Buddha say, had. And he said, no, no way. The body, <laughs> we have to give it food. Every time is changing. Feelings, forget about it. Today it's unpleasant, another time it's pleasant. You might make it pleasant, but that's your fixation. <laughs> you can really fixate yourself and really say, okay, you know, it's unpleasant, unpleasant, and fix it. But really it's changing if we pay attention. Even pain, actually. From my experience, pain is unpleasant. But as you continue to meditate, sometimes there are a few changes. You feel a little bit of unpleasant, then pleasant. And neutral, if actually, if you allow yourself to go different circles of, of, of unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral, and you go to another circle, then another circle, I'm go it's amazing how you are going to see pain in a different way. But you need to have to, you need patience. It's not going to happen within 20 minutes to see all these circles. <laughs> you really actually, really uh, try to watch, and of course, extend your boundaries. I don't want you to sit in pain and suffer, no. I'm just saying, okay, really whenever unpleasant experience comes, so come, I'm going to watch for five minutes and see if, uh, how it goes. One time when you really get a sense of how unpleasant slide into a little bit of unpleasant and then a little bit of neutral, then it will come again very, very unpleasant and you might even give up. But if you really have enough mindfulness and wisdom, and so you can at least try to see and then yeah, you, you practice. A little bit of footnote here. Please, if you have uh, uh, a situation, let's say an injury, Meditation is not a substitute for doctors. <laughs> it's not a substitute for medical attention. Because I don't want you to get the impression, oh, you know, when I have unpleasant feeling, I have a body injury, I just sit there and follow Bante's instruction, watch the unpleasant, it will change to unpleasant and neutral, and then you'll overcome all your pain. No, that's not what I'm conveying here. The instruction we have, the, I want to recap the instruction that we have for meditation here. Really, if you want to overcome these uh, distortions, follow the four foundation of mindfulness. There are eight things that I'm going to spell out for you if you want to overcome this uh, vipalasa. When you have an experience, let's say, you, you, let's say for instance, you, try, you, you use the, the body as your meditation uh, uh, foundation. You really uh, use the bodiless mindfulness of, the, of, of breathing. So you try to see the change. It's very, very important to be able to see the impermanence nature, the unsatisfactory nature, and selfless nature of whatever you are doing, you are practicing, whether it's feelings, whether it's body, mind state, or mental objects. This is very, very important. So the first one is really actually to <coughs> be aware of the body internally. This is the instruction of the Buddha. I'm just going to spell them out as I'm running out of time also. So first one, 
be mindful of the body internally. This is the instruction the Buddha gave in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Be mindful of the body externally. This instruction actually being, being to be mindful of the body externally, actually, usually that's not what we do. When we see other yogis doing walking meditation and we look at them, we judge them. Oh, look at the way how they're walking. We have given instruction to walk slowly. This yogi walk like on the moon, as if the yogi is walking on the moon. Actually, it happened to me in Burma. I was walking, 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 and a Chinese monk took all the steps of my walking steps. I, would, I was doing like six steps of walking, and then he got a camera and said, you know, we, this is not the instruction how to walk. <laughs> I said, I don't know where he got the guts. I mean, we're practicing under Upandita. I mean, he's a very serious monk. This is what we call <laughs> judging others. Mind your business. <laughs> That's why the Buddha gave instruction about mindfulness of the body externally. That means when you see other yogis washing their plates or what, just be mindful. Just seeing. Okay, seeing. Just, that's what's going. But we see them, oh, I don't want this yogi. Is that familiar to you? Oh, I like it. Could go the other way around. <laughs> so, also be mindful of the of the body. I'm just giving the body, but also the mind, the feelings also there and the other foundations, both internally and externally. That really much evens out everything. So, it doesn't matter whether you you are watching your body or other people's body or feelings. Okay, the fourth stage is a meditator abides contemplating rising, arising. That's impermanent. Passing away, both rising and passing away. That's the impermanence. And that you are going to overcome the vipalasa. Seventh step. Mindfulness that there is a body. You've had those instructions. By the way, if you go home and they tell people I was at meditation in the meditation center and the instruction was, oh, that is a body. Uh-huh. the people are going to react. You mean you flew all the way from Uganda to go and see the body at IMS? So be careful the way you are describing your instructions. Actually, these instructions are so deep. To other people who don't meditate, this looks superficial, but it's very, very deep. Because whenever we practice, really, we just try to react and then have distorted perception about the body, you know? Yes, that's the body for bare awareness and continuity of mindfulness. And the in, another instruction there which you shouldn't forget is a, a meditator abides independently. That means not attached to the experiences and not clinging on to anything in this world of five aggregates of clinging as I, mine, myself. So the practice is Everything you are seeing in your practice, not I, not mine, not myself. Because I is conceit, mine is craving, and then wrong views. I mean, my, my, myself is a wrong view, right? You have a self, don't worry about it. But in your experience, try to deconstruct your experience and really see it actually that everything is due to causes and condition. Whenever something is due, has causes and condition, it's really 
is no self because if it is self, then you should fixate it. You should be able to convert your feelings quickly. When you have a painful feelings, and if there's a self, you should within one minute say, oh, let me have pleasant feelings. But you can't do it. There is some kind of self which represents the five aggregates. Don't worry. You go with yourself. Don't think burnt to say, oh, there's no self, and you're going to leave yourself here. <laughs> You'll go with yourself somewhere. Don't be worried that you're going to have, lose the five aggregates. Yeah, well, of course, the five aggregates. Yeah, so... Let us sit for a moment or two. May all beings overcome Vipalasa by practicing Vipassana. May you be free from this distorted perception and attain final liberation. Thank you very much for listening. I offer this for your reflection. Thank you very much.